be seated. So to work through our passage this morning, we're going to look at four different topics that present themselves in the text. And so I'm going to give these to you up front, so you can jot them down, and then we will dig in one by one. So our four topics this morning are this, God's promise, God's prescription, God's power, and God's purpose. God's promise, God's prescription, God's power, and God's purpose. I'm going to warn you a little bit in advance that uh, our passage, Genesis 21, 1 to 7, has tentacles that run kind of in a variety of different texts, especially the preceding nine chapters of Genesis. So if you have a paper copy of the Bible, you might be ruffling through and jotting down notes, and that is great. Um, If you have uh, a digital version, you might be doing a lot of scrolling back and forth. Uh, But with that, let's dig in to God's promise. God's promise. Genesis 21, 1 through 2. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. So the time is finally here. We've been building up to this point in the text for the past couple of months. It's been woven in through the previous nine chapters of Genesis, the promise of an offspring and eventually a great nation made by God multiple times to Abraham, foundational to the book of Genesis and really foundational to all of the scriptures. And this promise began all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where it says this in Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And when this promise is given to Abraham, he and his wife Sarah, they have no kids. They have no offspring. They have no means by which a great nation will be created. But the promise from God is that Abraham will be made into a great nation. I'm sure that when they received this in their 70s, there's probably some confusion. Could this really be us that God is talking to? Could this really be our family? But Abraham and Sarah, they listen, and they leave as God has commanded them. But then time passes, and nothing happens. No child is conceived, and then a small bit of confusion or doubt probably begins to grow. So we get to Genesis 15, and Abraham is certainly doubting, confused about what exactly God was promising him back in Genesis chapter 12 to which the Lord brings additional clarity in Genesis 15, verse 1. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. The covenant restated and clarified for Abraham. The heir of Abraham, the beginning of this promised nation, will not be given to a slave but rather it will come from Abraham's own body. 
However, we know from Genesis 16 that despite this restated and clarified promise from God, Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands as he sleeps with Hagar, Sarah's servant, at her request. She becomes pregnant with Ishmael. Ishmael, however, despite being from Abraham's own body, is not the promised heir. And he is not the beginning of the great and blessed nation. Abraham and Sarah are not walking in faith, but in the flesh. But despite their demonstrated faithlessness, God is faithful. So the Lord appears to Abraham again in Genesis 17 to again restate and bring added clarity to his promise. It says this in Genesis 17, 15. God said to Abraham, As for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Further clarity for Abraham and Sarah. Not only is the projected heir to come from Abraham's own body, but also from Sarah's body. A truly wild promise given their age. And then just a few verses later, Genesis 17, Abraham and Sarah are given even more clarity about when this will take place. When the Lord says this in verse 21, But I will confirm my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear, to you at this time next year. And again in Genesis 18, 10, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. These promises building from Genesis 12 to Genesis 18. The same covenant, but added clarity. And this is what comes true when we get to Genesis chapter 21, verse 1, where it says, The Lord came to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. As the Lord said time and time again, and as the Lord had promised time and time again, brothers and sisters, the Lord is faithful. His promises are true. They're not partially true, but his promises are completely and entirely true. The promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, then again in Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 18, all coming to fruition in Genesis 21. And this is an amazing reality. I think that everyone here who identifies as a Christian would agree with the statement that God's promises are true, that God's promises are trustworthy. We would not say, yes, uh, his promises are true. His promises are trustworthy. I can trust them. But do you actually believe all of his promises? Does your life reflect the belief in all that God has said in his word? So here I want to look at just this question. How can this passage encourage us to more deeply believe God's promises? How can this passage encourage us to more deeply believe God's promises? And I think that there are two big areas of encouragement from the story of the birth of Isaac, first two verses. The first is that God's promises are true despite our sin. That God's promises are true despite our sin. I think it would be very easy for Abraham and Sarah to doubt God's promises of a son after Sarah had convinced Abraham to sleep with her servant, Hagar, to think, wow, we have failed miserably. We have missed just a golden opportunity that God gave us this promise, but we didn't fully believe it, we didn't trust in it, and we have sinned greatly. That there must be an expiration date on this promise. There must be some way 
to disqualify ourselves. And in our life, I think oftentimes we sit here asking, you know, is God's promise to make me a new creation true when I'm still struggling with bitterness or pornography or anger? When I feel totally in love with the world, will he actually complete this work in me as he has said? Or we ask, can God really forgive me when I've sinned in this way or in that way? Our sin and our flesh, it prevents us from seeing and believing God's promises. That's not how God's promises work. When God promised a blessed nation to Abraham through Isaac, he was fully aware of the future sin of Abraham that brought about Ishmael. But despite their sin and despite their displayed unbelief, God's promises are true. That's because his promises are not rooted in us, but rather they're rooted in him. It says this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. God's promises depend on his faithfulness and not on our own. We praise God for that truth. The second encouragement from the story of the birth of Isaac that we can see is that God's promises are true even when they take a long time. That his promises are true even when they take a long time. You know, when God visited Abraham in Genesis 12 with that first promise, Abraham was 75 years old. And in our passage this morning, Abraham is 100 years old. 25 years have passed. That's over 9,000 days of waking up and wondering, could this promise actually come true? And each day thinking it less likely that we will actually have this promised son. Now for us, we get discouraged and we don't see the Lord move after 25 minutes, let alone 25 years. We're so imp- impatient, you know, wanting the Lord to work on our timeline, wanting the Lord to work within our plans. Hebrews 6, it speaks to the patient persevering that we must undertake as believers. Hebrews 6, for God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. After waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Brothers and sisters, are you patient as you wait for the promises of God? Are you persevering as you wait for the promises of God? The scriptures, they would, they would exhort us, they would encourage us to demonstrate patience, to demonstrate perseverance as we wait for the promises of God. So in verses 1 and 2, we see the theme of God's promise, a promise made to Abraham 25 years prior, kept true despite the sin of Abraham and Sarah, dialed in within a timeline or within a year prior, now experienced and enjoyed by Abraham and Sarah. So God's promises are true. Secondly, God's prescription. It's our second topic, God's prescription. Genesis 21, verse 3 and 4. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. 
Now, there are two prescriptions or commands that we see Abraham obeying and following in this passage. And the first is the naming of Isaac. The naming of Isaac. So the instruction for Isaac's name, they were given to Abraham back in Genesis 17.19. Genesis 17.19, where it says, says this. But God said, No, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. So it's clear what Abraham should name his son, Isaac. But I have to believe that once Sarah delivered Isaac, and Abraham held him in his hands, that they're staring into the eyes of that baby that they longed for, for years and decades, that Abraham would have had some measure of temptation to not name him what God instructed, but maybe rather a name that they have actually wanted for decades, planned for for decades. Maybe a family name, a name passed down from generation to generation. I'm sure there was a name that he more preferred, thinking, you know, the baby is here right now. Would it really matter if we name him something different? But Abraham, he doesn't give in to this temptation. If he had this temptation, he rejected it. He followed God's prescription, God's naming of his son, Isaac. And what is included in this name, in the name of Isaac? Well, the name Isaac means he laughs. He laughs. What you re, if you refer back to some of the passages of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, this name really carries significant importance. It says this in Genesis 17, starting in verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will produce nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell face down. Then he laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a hundred-year-old man? Can Sarah, a ninety-year-old woman, give birth? You know, God tells Abraham that the son isn't going to come from just him. It won't be through Ishmael, but rather through his 90-year-old wife, Sarah. And how does Abraham respond? He laughs. We have a passage that we covered about a month ago in Genesis 18 when the Lord appears to Abraham and it says this, starting in verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. Abraham and Sarah, both laughing at the promises of God. So the irony in the name is very, very thick. And after the laughter, it comes full circle in Genesis 21, verse 6, where it said, Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And everyone who hears will laugh with me. From a laughter of mockery to a laughter of joy, celebrating over her son. So Abraham is obedient to God's command in the naming of Isaac. The second area of obedience is in the circumcision of Isaac. The circumcision of Isaac. Genesis 21.4 When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God 
had commanded him. This command for circumcision was received by Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. God also said to Abraham, As for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. We know after this that Abraham is circumcised at the age of 99 years. Then his son Ishmael, who was 13 years old at the time, he was also circumcised. But here in Genesis 21, with Isaac, we have the first recorded eight-day-old baby being circumcised, the child of the promise, the child of the covenant, receiving the sign of the covenant in circumcision. And despite the pain, this was not something that Isaac was going to, or that Abraham was going to negotiate on or waver with. He had experienced the fulfillment of God's promise in his son, and there's no chance that he was going to allow his promised son to be cut off from the people of God by withholding circumcision. So we've seen God's promise fulfilled in the birth of Isaac, and then God's prescription joyfully obeyed by Abraham in the naming and the circumcision of Isaac. Now we have our third topic, which is God's power. God's power, Genesis 21.5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. You know, would, would God's power have been on display if Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah in their 20s? Certainly. You know, God's power is on display every time there is conception and in every birth. But is there something unique and awe-inspiring about a child being born to a man of 100 years old and a woman in her 90s? Most certainly. Most certainly. This is God's power in a truly miraculous fashion. Something impossible by human standards. Romans 4, it says this. Romans 4, verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken so will your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promises, but strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Abraham, he considered his own body to be already dead. 
he considered Sarah's womb to be dead. But they had faith not only in God's promises, but also in God's power. Abraham, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised them. This is substantial power, to be able to do what you have promised, and Abraham had faith in this power. Ephesians 3.20 says this of God's power. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's power, it works in us. And his power has not changed from the birth of Isaac to the year 2023. It is the same God. It is the same power. And he uses the same power to do what he has promised he will do. You know, so often I doubt the power of God. I doubt that God is powerful enough to save this person. Or I doubt that God is powerful enough to change the direction and the outlook of this country or that country. Or I believe that God is not powerful enough to cease or stop this particular war. You know, I know that I do. I think many of us have too low a view on the power of God. But we see this power on display in the birth of Isaac. He's born to Abraham and to Sarah in their old age. The power of God, it is real. Our last topic is God's purpose. That was God's power on display in the birth of Isaac. This is God's purpose. The story of a baby born to an elderly couple after decades of infertility is about more than just their family. It's not something isolated to just the Middle East thousands of years ago. Know the story and the events leading up to it in the first 20 chapters of Genesis are ultimately pointing to the redemption of man back to God through the person of Jesus Christ. This is God's ultimate purpose in the birth of Isaac. Galatians 3. Galatians 3 says this in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seed, who is Christ. God's purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, who is the ultimate seed of Abraham. Not Isaac, not not Isaac's son, Jacob, not the twelve tribes that would come, the twelve sons of Jacob, but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who just like Isaac was born of a promise, a promise not given 25 years before his birth, but thousands of years before his birth, a promise dating all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate prescription of God, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that this Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the Word, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, who like Isaac was a baby, powerfully born to unexpectant parents, not due to their age, like Abraham and Sarah, 
but due to the fact they had not had sex prior to Mary's conception. A baby born that fully displayed God's power. So the ultimate promise, the ultimate prescription, the ultimate display of power, all of this in the person of Jesus Christ. This was God's ultimate purpose, not his only purpose, but his ultimate purpose thousands of years ago when he brought about the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah. Drawing you and me today to the person of Jesus Christ is God's ultimate purpose now. So how do we apply this passage? What can these verses and topics mean for us today? There's four points of application that I want to put before you. First, related to God's promise, I want to ask two questions. First, do you know God's promises? Do you know God's promises? And second, are you believing God's promises? 2 Peter 1 says this, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. God's promises are for our own good. They're not designed to make life more difficult or more frustrating or more complex. They're designed so that we can escape the corruption description both that is in the world and also in our flesh, so we can share in the divine nature of Christ through those promises. We should be actively pursuing, knowing, and believing God's promises in our life. Secondly, related to God's prescription, I want to ask, is there anything that God has prescribed for you to do that you are not doing? Are there commands from his word that you are walking in disobedience to? Is there any area where you think that it's not that big of a deal, where you say, oh, it doesn't really matter if I do this or do that? Or maybe it's something more serious, where you're actually demonstrating unbelief in your life, at risk of being cut off. We must take God's prescription and commands with the utmost seriousness in our lives. Third, related to God's power. I want to ask, do you believe in God's power? Not just believe in his promises, knowing and believing in his promises, but do you believe in his power, that he's able to do, to fulfill all that he has promised? Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance, in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the ministry, uh, sorry, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. You know, God's power toward us who believe is the exact same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So we should not be a people that shrink back from trials and difficulties, believing that there is no hope, believing that we don't stand a chance against our flesh, that we don't stand a chance against 
this world. No, we are to be a people who believe in and tap into the power of God. This power, it is immeasurable based on God's strength, not based on our own. And lastly, related to God's purpose, I want to ask, have you met this person, Jesus Christ? The ultimate purpose and fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham for his, heir, for his heir and offspring. If you're here this morning, and if you are not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ, God's purpose, it included you. It included you when he fulfilled the promise of the birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah to ultimately bring about the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ, who would live and die in your place so that your sins could be forgiven and so that you could actually know God. His ultimate desire and purpose is that you would repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, giving praise and glory to God. So brothers and sisters, God's promises his promises are trustworthy, that his prescriptions are to be obeyed, his power is real, and God's purpose ultimately points us to Christ. Let's pray.